afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speaker and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity for your evaluation. And if you are viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of the screen. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Mahmoud, who is one of our third year internal medicine residents and will be serving as the Chief Resident for Research, Quality Improvement, and Patient Safety here at NGHS. He is pursuing a cardiology fellowship. He received his medical degree from Campbell University School of Osteopathic Medicine in North Carolina. Prior to attending medical school, he completed a Master's in Biotechnology with a concentration in Regulatory Affairs from John Hopkins University. He also holds a BS in psychology and a BS in nursing from Georgia Southwestern State University. Before starting his medical career, he worked as a nurse for almost nine years at Duke University Medical Center, where he also was involved in the development and management of various phase one through four clinical trials. His research interests involve enhancing the quality of life, improving clinical outcomes, and creating cost-effective healthcare delivery methods that improve the health of underserved populations. In his free time, he enjoys spending time with his wife and two daughters. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Mahmoud. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Can you guys hear me okay? All right. So today I'm going to be talking about pericarditis diagnosis and management, the past, present, and future. So I don't have any disclosures. So my objectives for today's talk are to discuss key features for pericarditis, especially in the history and physical examination, um, recognize etiologies for pericarditis, including COVID-19 infection, describe the ECG and ECHO findings, and then review some evidence-based management for recurrent pericarditis, um, which involves novel and future therapies. So here's sort of the roadmap for today. We'll start with a clinical scenario, talk a little bit about background for pericarditis, then clinical presentation, physical exam findings, lab workup, etiologies, ECG changes, diagnosis, management, and complications. So I have a question for you guys. So we have this 65-year-old gentleman that comes in. He's admitted three days after cabbage. He has an MI. So he has an MI, then gets admitted, gets cabbage. The patient states that um, the chest pain is exacerbated by deep breaths, but feels better when he leans forward compared to lying flat. On exam, his vitals are normal, no heart murmur. Um, and then his cardiac enzymes are normal. His repeat ECG now shows diffuse ST elevation. What do you guys think it is? Now, this talk is about acute pericarditis, so I think everybody should get it that it's acute pericarditis. So a little bit of background. So the pericardium is a thin fibroelastic sac composed of two layers um, that separates the heart from its surrounding and then has a pericardial space there as well. So the outer layer of the pericardium is the fibrous uh, pericardium, usually about two millimeters in thickness, and the inner portion um, is, all, is another two-layered sac called a serous pericardium. So those are pointed out for you guys. Can you guys see my pointer? Yeah. And so here's the serous pericardium 
in the potential pericardial space, which can then fill with fluid or blood. And then same thing here, here's the fibrinous pericardium. So when we look at gross pathology, I just wanted to point out a couple of slides for you guys. Um, so A shows you acute fibrinous pericarditis, so inflammation here. Um, whereas B is more organized fibrinous um, exudate. Um, so you can see that the space is now filled. Uh, and C is um, sort of healed pericarditis that's left some of these thin adhesions between the two layers. So for your clinical presentation, acute pericarditis is an inflammatory process that involves the pericardium. So 5% of admissions um, with chest pain have acute pericarditis. So it's not something that we commonly see in internal medicine, but we do, do, we do see it um, throughout the year. So most patients with pericarditis have a benign course that usually resolves with a little bit of NSAIDs. Um, but they, their, pres uh, their presentation can be acute or recurrent. Um, chest pain um, is often described as sharp, stabbing in character, worsens with coughing, swallowing, and laying flat, improves with sitting up and leaning forwards, and may radiate to the back, um, especially between the shoulder blades and the neck. So dyspnea is especially um, common when you have a large pericardial effusion. Um, then you also have atrial fibrillation, um, just because your myocardium is irritated. And then systemic symptoms may occur, so such as fever, malaise, weight loss, rash, um, arthritis flare-up. Especially in uh, connective tissue diseases, you'll see more of the rash and arthritis symptoms. So when we talk about physical exam, your patients will appear uncomfortable or anxious. Um, they may be tachycardic, may have a pericardial friction rub, which will sound, uh, let's see. Let me play it for you guys and then I'll go back. Right. Um, and then lungs, you might have a pleural rub. For systemic signs, you might have fever, weight loss, night sweats, rash, and arthritis. So lab workup, uh, generally there's no specific biomarkers like when you think about cardiac enzymes for uh, acute coronary syndrome. Uh, so you'll use inflammatory markers like SED rate, CRP, which will be elevated in 80% of the patients along with white blood cell count. Troponin I or troponin T, just depending upon how much involvement of the heart there is, may be elevated in as many as 30% of patients. So on the right-hand side, you'll see this diagram, which is from the European Heart uh, Society for their, their acute pericarditis guidelines. So they recommend for their first level for everyone getting ESR, CRP, white blood cell count, renal function, liver test, and thyroid function, um, markers of myocardial um, injury, so your cardiac enzymes like troponin, CKMB, and then getting an ECG echo and chest x-ray. And then if there's not enough evidence to support the uh, diagnosis of acute pericarditis, then they move on to their second level um, with CT, MRI, um, and then pericardiosynthesis if you have a fluid there, and then if you have suspected bacterial um, or neoplastic pericarditis, you, you also want to drain it to see what's growing. So when you, we talk about pericardial fluid analysis, 
you want to get general chemistry, you're looking for protein level um, that's high above three, um, protein fluid to serum ratio similar to Light's criteria, LDH greater than 200, um, and then white blood cell count. Cytology-wise, you're looking for, um, you know, cytology, any kind of abnormal cells, and then PCR if you're suspecting TB. Um, and then microbiology, you just want to get cultures and gram stain just to see what's growing. So when we talk about etiologies, on the left-hand side, before we get into it, it's a proposed mechanism for why we get pericarditis. So you have some sort of injury um, around the heart cells, so such as in the case of COVID, that activates your immune system, causing these pathogen-associated molecular patterns, like here they described adenovirus, herpes, and influenza, but we can add COVID-19 as well to it. And then that leads to um, essentially release of IL-alpha and IL-beta, and IL-beta mediates your, um, your response from the immune system and causes the inflammation, and I'll go a little bit more in depth into that. So most of your causes in the U.S. and Europe, about 90% are going to be idiopathic, occurring after a GI or a flu-like symptoms. Um, infections, like we talked about, viruses, HIV, COVID-19, bacterial, micro, uh, mycobacterium, like TB, fungal, protozoal, and then you have your uh, next up, after infectious is inflammatory and collagen vascular diseases. So those are more your rheumatological conditions like RA, systemic lupus. Then you have metabolic issues like um, we always think about our dialysis patients with their uremia. Um, you can also have issues from hypothyroidism. Um, and then trauma and injury. Um, did this patient get into a car crash? Um, did they get um, blunt or sharp chest wall trauma? aortic dissections, um, did they have a procedure recently, or did they get an ablation or anything like that. Next, we also think about drug-related or pharmacology. So chemotherapy comes to mind a lot. Uh, amiodarone's another one, hydralazine, phenytoin, and the list is pretty exhaustive, but just to give you guys a couple. And then finally, neoplastic or malignancies. Um, generally, primary ones are going to be mesothelioma and angiosarcoma, metastatic, especially lungs, breast, bone, lymphoma, and melanoma. So when we're looking at the proposed mechanism for inflammation here, so you have some sort of pericardial damage that occurs um, from either an infection or something else, and which then triggers IL-alpha release, and then your tissue macrophage makes the IL-beta. And that activated goes back and causes sort of a cascade and a positive feedback loop which increases more and more. And so then what ends up happening is your IL beta IL alphas bind to your capillary endothelium um, leading to increased white blood cell adhesion, monocyte infiltration, neutrophil infiltration, and capillary leak. And then just like I mentioned, the IL beta is where you get your fever, your increased CRP. Um, from COX and IL-6 pathways. So ECG changes that you guys will see. So early on, you'll see some PR depressions, generalized ST segment elevation, stage two. You might have some changes at the J point on the baseline before T waves begin to flatten. 
and then you get T-Wave inversions, and then stage four is your normalization of the ECG. So here's a sample one. Um, let me see if I can use my pointer to point out a couple of things that I had highlighted. All right, so here you guys can see that there, the, the, you have ST elevations that are concave up um, throughout. And then you have PR depressions. If you look at this line here, there's your PR pointed out by the blue arrow, and it's below that isoelectric line. And so then the question comes is, how do we differentiate that from a, you know, an MI or early repolarization? So similarly, in early repolarization, you'll get ST elevation limited, though, to the precordial leads, no PR depressions, um, prominent tall T waves, um, ST segment T wave ratio less than 0.25, and then ECG will be stable over time. So here in acute pericarditis, you'll get diffuse ST elevations and an ST segment T wave ratio greater than 0.25, PR depressions, normal T wave amplitude, no J point abnormalities, uh, ST changes evolve over time. Whereas in your myocardial infarction, you'll have an anatomical distribution, it won't be diffuse, um, and you'll also have reciprocal changes um, convex or upward ST elevations, um, Q waves may be present, and loss of R wave changes. So here's uh, echo changes. Echo changes mainly occur when you have a pleural effusion, or sorry, pericardial effusion. And so you can see that here at the bottom in this area. So this is the parasternal long axis view. Let me go back. And then in the subcostal view, you can also see that you have some fluid accumulation here as well. So how do we diagnose pericarditis? Um, so you need two out of the four criteria. So either chest pain, that's characteristic of pericardial uh, pain, uh, chest pain, pericardial rub, uh, ST elevation or PR depressions, and then pericardial effusion. So again, from the European Heart society, we have some guidelines, they recommend same thing, two to four. They also add in some supporting characteristics using markers of inflammation like CRP, ESR, and white blood cell count, and then pericardial inflammation on a CT or MRI. So how do we manage these patients? Your first line is NSAIDs, so ibuprofen, you can also use aspirin, but prefer ibuprofen over it. Um, and then you next, you can use in conjunction with colchicine. Um, if you have acute pericarditis that's um, a little bit refractory or not really helping with the NSAID therapies. But the key is going to be managing the underlying process. So how do we prognosticate these patients? So when you have major factors like fever above 38 degrees Celsius, subacute onset, large pericardial effusion, cardiac tamponade, lack of uh, response to aspirin or NSAIDs after at least one week of therapy, minor um, criteria or minor things that can also be indicators of poor prognostication are myopericarditis, so involvement of the myocardium along with the pericardium, immunosuppressive medicines, trauma, 
uh, or being on oral anticoagulant therapy. So the key points for the pericarditis is you need two out of the four diagnostic criteria, either chest pain that's typical for pericarditis uh, or pericardial friction rub or ECG changes or a new pericardial effusion. First line treatment's gonna be idiopathic pericarditis, um, high dose aspirin or NSAIDs and adjuvant uh, colchicine therapy. So let's talk a little bit about pericarditis complications. So when we look at it, so acute pericarditis um, will pretty much resolve on its own um, with minimal supportive therapy using NSAIDs to help reduce the inflammation. But 15% can uh, progress to involve the myocardium. One to 2% will develop cardiac tamponade. And then 15 to 30% will develop recurrent pericarditis. And we really don't know uh, what percentage of patients um, end up with getting constrictive pericarditis. So I'm going to touch a little bit on each of those. So when we talk about um, recurrent pericarditis, um, they'll, you know, of course, have another episode within at least four to six weeks or after four to six weeks of the initial one or prior episode. Um, they'll get symptom recurrence, and then you'll diagnose with an acute episode followed by a symptom-free period of at least four to six weeks and then another episode. So how do we manage these patients? Um, first line, NSAIDs and colchicine are then followed by corticosteroids, um, then IV immunoglobulins, then anakinra, and then finally azathioprine. So thinking back to the proposed mechanism for inflammation, if you guys remember, I talked about a little bit about IL-alpha and IL-beta. So some of the newer therapies that are coming out now that are going to be third-line novel therapies are using recombinant IL-1 receptor antagonists, which would then affect um, alpha and beta. And then there's an uh, anti-IL-1 beta monoclonal antibody. And then there's, of course, the IL-1 decoid uh, receptor trap, which basically binds the IL um, alpha and beta and prevents it from binding to the cell membrane receptor. So pericardial effusions, so workup, you're looking essentially for the cause, you're trying to rule out cancer, so CBC, chemistry, TSH, ANA, um, cultures, cytology, um, and then pericardial biopsy, more sensitive than fluid for neoplasm and for systemic disease. Management-wise, you're going to get serial echoes to follow if it's progressing or regressing, Pericardiosynthesis if your pericardial effusion persists beyond three months. And then you're going to try to avoid anticoagulation because that can lead to um, hemorrhage within that area and cause worsening of the pericardial effusions. So one of the big ones that we all remember is cardiac tamponade um, from pericarditis, but it can also happen from malignancy, trauma, injury, hypothyroidism, and um, post-procedural such as TAVR, Watchman's ablations, and aortic dissections. So what happens here is you have a excessive fluid accumulation in the pericardial space that leads to severe elevation in intrapericardial pressures, which then prevents filling of the cardiac chambers and then leading to hemodynamic collapse. So we all remember this and from med school as Beck's triad, right? So you've got JVD, you have distant heart tones, and hypotension. And there's this New England Journal of Medicine article from 2003 that talks about um, how much 
pericardial effusion you'll tolerate before you go into cardiac tamponade. So if it's a rapid um, effusion, you don't have a lot of room because it's filling up very quickly. So 150 to 200 mLs is enough to put you in cardiac tamponade. Whereas if it fills a little bit slower, so your pericardial effusion is happening slowly over time, then you can stretch um, the pericardial space a little bit more, as in like cancers, and that can go up to two liters. So a huge difference there um, for causing symptoms. So pericarditis uh, complications for cardiac tamponade, looking at um, exam, you'll get pulsus paradoxus, um, which is drop in systolic blood pressure over 10 um, with inspiration, and that may be difficult to detect in patients that have um, poor or depressed uh, cardiac outputs. ECG will show you low voltage and electrical alternance. So what I'm talking about here is when you look at the QRS, you have a pretty large QRS here, small, large, small, large, small, and that's your alt uh, electrical alternance. So then, you know, there's just some videos here which didn't unfortunately play, so let me see if I can play them for you guys. So in that image, let me see if I can pause it. I'm going to have to drag it over. To just kind of give you the appreciation, there's the pericardial space. Um, it looks just as big as the heart when you compare both sides to it. And then your heart is there, so you can see the heart's going to have very minimal movement, and it's going to be very difficult for that heart to pump. So, again, that was the image from the subcostal view. So you have right atrial collapse, right ventricular collapse. On the apical view, you'll see systolic right atrial collapse. And then parasternal view, you'll start to see early diastolic RV collapse. Other changes you can see, you can see a dilated IVC um, without uh, respirophasic variations, which normally you'll get um, when, uh, or you'll have higher ones when you have low volumes. So how do we manage these patients with cardiac tamponade? It depends on if they're hemodynamically stable or unstable, um, but it's going to come down to draining the fluid, right? So here is the immediate subxiphoid approach to um, pericardiocentesis. So I like this image from the New England Journal of Medicine or the video because it shows you once after the needle insertion adding the um, syringe on, they'll show you an internal view of where you're going in the space, um, and then they'll withdraw. And then, of course, that space will be filled with either um, blood or fluid or something of that nature. And then they're using ultrasound-guided technique here to see where the pericardial fluid is, um, so when they're withdrawing. And so they're all, of course, relative contraindications for this procedure. Um, so chest trauma, aortic dissections, any kind of myocardial wall ruptures, um, those patients need to have CT surgery, see them, and then take them to the OR. 
So constrictive pericarditis is another one. Similar symptoms. You have dyspnea, fatigue, JVD, um, hep uh, hepatomegaly, and ascites. You have some uh, pericardial knock is sort of the classic symptom for it or pathognomonic. Um, early diastolic sound, you'll have AFib in up to 20% of patients. Um, and then TB is the most common cause in developing countries. Uh, Management-wise, we'll diurese these uh, patients, but you want to do it with caution because you don't want to uh, dehydrate them or make things worse. Um, and then two to three months of conservative measures prior to pericardectomy, similar to what we did in the pericardial effusions. Um, and then if they have persistent symptoms and they're not getting better, they may be candidates for surgery. So those are my references. And that's your link for CME credits. What questions do you guys have? Sure, Dr. Kim. Pericarditis as a from the actual disease. How do, how do you find that balance when discussing with your outpatient? So it's tough, right? Because we sure. So the question is, is that this was an excellent uh, presentation, and especially during our current COVID um, education, in pericarditis is certainly one of the risks for not just the COVID infection, but also some people have concerns of the COVID vaccine. So I, I was interested about Dr. Mahmoud's experience about how he educates patients on the risks and so forth. And that's challenging because we don't really have the accurate numbers for both, right? So what we can say is that we know um, that with the vaccination, there's not as many rate or the rates are lower in comparison to um, you getting the COVID infection itself and then developing pericarditis or myocarditis. So without having those hard numbers, I struggle with that. So that's what I tell patients is we know that there are complications to the vaccines. I mean, lots of people have had multiple different and then we've paused vaccinations at times because of those. But it's always come back that those are rare instances. They're not as common where we know it's, it's common for patients with COVID infection to get pericarditis. But again, I don't know. What is that? Is that 5%? Is that 10% of our patient population? And that's something that I can look up for you and try to see if that's been um, found out. But as far as I know, it isn't. And if anybody else in the room knows, feel free to share. Any other questions? Um, great presentation, Dr. Mahmood. I guess my only thing that I was struck by when I was listening to your overview and everything else is you know, I'm always usually thinking about how we're stratifying folks and everything else. And I honestly don't know. I've never technically looked. But is there anything that you saw when you were preparing this about, you know, who is more likely to develop these complications about, you know, stratifying them? Who's going to be the patients that are going to struggle with recurrent pancreatitis and things like that in the future? I know you talked about the folks that were more likely to have a generalized, you know, poor outcome and things like that. Do we have any idea about identifying these patients as they work their way through the system? See, I don't have exact, but what I found, you know, from the European Association uh, or the European 
um, Society for Cardiology and some of the other guidelines is it looks like it's more of your immunosuppressed patients, patients that uh, have rheumatological disorders. They tend to get recurrent um, inflammation, and that's why they get recurrent pericarditis. Um, so we know that you know a third of the patients will develop it. So if you think back, like 90% of the patients are idiopathic. Yeah. So we still can't really, even if we argue that, hey, the 10% are from the other you know, causes, you still have 20% that you have to account for some way that are idiopathic. So I would argue that maybe one, to, one out of four to one out of five, we still don't know the true cause. Yeah. All right. I think that's um, really helpful. I know that with everything, this has really um, changed a lot over with recent medicine and everything. So it was a great overview. Thank you. We have one online. Hold on just a second. Okay, online, Dr. Kruer is asking, are there any people or reasons we should try to identify early pericarditis before it gets to the classic level? That's tough to say. Um, I wasn't able to find anything, you know, in the literature. Of course, we always have our suspicions for patients that are um, more likely to have them. So those are, your, you know, again, immunocompromised patients, patients with chronic viral illnesses like HIV, um, then your patients with rheumatological disorders. Um, so I think it's more of a clinical suspicion. I wouldn't recommend screening patients for pericarditis unless they have some symptoms. And even if we look back at our criteria, the criteria sort of require chest pain, um, pericardial friction rub, or ECG or pericardial effusion. So two of those you can easily get from your exam. Right? So just listening to the patient's heart, you'll know if they have a pericardial friction rub. Getting a good history, you'll know if they have typical chest pain that's characteristic of it. Um, and then the next thing would be ordering an ECG and an echo. So if you order an ECG, it'll help you if you have new changes, and maybe then you can meet you know, two out of the three criteria. But I would argue that if you have a small pericardial effusion, and none of the other three, I don't think you need to go for an echo. So that's why I would at least start with, you know, good thorough history and, you know, just physical exam, which we do for every patient that comes in through clinic anyways. So I think by that nature, we're screening patients for it. But I wouldn't go beyond to start ordering ECGs and echoes. At least that's my understanding. All right. No problem. So to repeat that, it was just, I was asking basically if aspirin or ibuprofen, which I know are our first-line treatments, if those naturally change the natural course of pericarditis, if they're, you know, changing the pathophys that you were kind of outlining. So, you know, when we go, when we look at the pathophysiology, if you remember back, NSAIDs and these guys, they act on the IL-6 system, right? So what they're doing is they're essentially reducing inflammation by that cascade. Um, I, I don't know if the question you're asking is, do we feel like is the NSAID somehow propagating a recurrent pericarditis episode? Or I was alluding to, if I started them on earlier, am I benefiting them sort of thing? You know, is there a you know, benefit to a prolonged course of NSAIDs or something else because I'm 
changing something naturally about them. And I so in my notes, what I had written down is so you can do indomethacin like 50 milligrams BID for two to four weeks. You can do ibuprofen 800 TID for two to four weeks. So that's where that two to four weeks range is, right? So if you start early, you're going to have shorter duration of therapy versus if you're late, you're more severe and you need a longer course of therapy. Okay, thank you. Any other questions online? We're good. Okay, how about the room? Well, All thank right. you so much, everyone, for attending, and thank you so much um, for being here, because I know lunch is always, you know, a difficult time for folks to get away, and that might be the only time you guys have um, that's downtime. So thank you so much, and I'd like to thank Dr. Parasititis, who's my mentor, that helped me with the presentation as well. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Mahmood. Thank you.